Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 111 being recorded on Friday, December 29th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. After a long uh, Jason and Scott holiday, excited to have you back. Yeah, it's fun to talk to you again. It's It's been a little too long. Yeah, yeah, we had kind of this perfect storm where uh, you had a bunch of travel, I had travel that offset from your travel, and it has been 30 days since we laid down a Jason and Scott show. So we have some uh, catching up to do. Yeah, so first of all, the most important question, have you seen Star Wars yet? I have. Uh, I have made good use of our time off, and I feel like I've caught up on all the media um, that you've been frustrated that you haven't been able to talk to me about. So I, I got to see the Star Wars probably a week after you, uh, but... Totally enjoyed it, and uh, obviously we're not going to do any spoilers, but I feel like uh, um, I was I was uh, pleased and enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. There's there's a pretty good segment of fandom that hates it, though, so it's been uh, – I know uh, Chris uh, over at – he was previously at Puma and now at IZOD is uh, very upset about Star Wars. We may have to get him on the show to after more people have seen it to, to hear his thoughts on it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, been, although we might have to reserve that for the e-commerce Star Wars fan spinoff podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slightly more niche audience. The, the, but but four hours. Exactly. Uh, but I, I feel like this is useful information only to you and not to any of our listeners, but I, um, I've done some hard work in this month. I've totally caught up on Mr. Robot, and I was like over a season behind you on that. Um, and I feel like I've almost completely caught up on all the – the Avengers Netflix series, so I'm uh, I'm excited nice. uh, to to uh, chat in uh, in our pre-show prep sometime. Yeah, the uh, content is really coming out rapidly though. So have you seen? You got to watch Discovery. So Star Trek Discovery is good, uh, and then the new Will Smith movie on Netflix is really good. I think you'd like it. Ah, so bright. I am caught up on Discovery, and I agree. I've been totally enjoying it. Other than the irritation of having to subscribe to. Um, the yet another service for one show. Um, that's the CBS show uh, uh, network, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so I'm also watching The Good Fight uh, just because we used to watch The Good Wife and we, we weren't interested in subscribing just to watch the spinoff series. But since we bought it for Star Wars, we've been watching that as well. So, yeah, lots of lots of good content. And it is sort of merging with the commerce world as uh, many of our, our friends in the commerce space have become the major content publishers in the new world. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, so we, since so it's been a month since we had a show, we have a lot to cover, and let's jump into it. So first, we're going to do some trip reports, and then we'll cover some news. And this is going to be the last show of 2017. So in next week's episode, which will be the first show of 2018, we that'll be our annual prediction show where we'll review those predictions we made. What was it, Jason? Episode 64, I think. I want to say 66. Okay, somewhere back then. Uh, so we made some bold predictions, and we're going to kind of score ourselves on those and then lay down our 2018 bold predictions for what's going to happen in all things commerce. 
So that, why don't you kick it off? Tell me, uh, tell me about some of the interesting retail you saw as you were traveling around in December. Yeah, so I did do a bunch of trips in December. I think, ironically, uh, you may have gone to visit more new stores uh, than I had. Um, but I, I did uh, mention, and hopefully a lot of people see it now, um, I, w- I got to visit one of the very first Amazon pop-ups in Whole Foods. So there's now a bunch of Whole Foods stores that have these dedicated Amazon pop-ups, and they um, have all the the Amazon branded uh, gadgets and a few third party gadgets in a store. So my local Whole Foods has one. Um, nothing super surprising. Their inventory is really good though. So like they had the the security cameras when they first came out. I was able to get some of the the Echo buttons for my um, for our our uh, Alexas here at the the house, so we can play Jeopardy and do um, do that sort of stuff. Um, and you, of course, heard heard my device in the background responding to to our <laughs> podcast because I forgot to hit mute. Um, one interesting thing about the Amazon pop up store, at least interesting to me, the point of sale that they're running in the pop up store is Clover, which is a super popular um, small business POS system. Uh, but it, I find it humorous because if you go into an actual Amazon bookstore, it's kind of a pain to check out because they make you use the Amazon app and they don't accept cash. Um, and so somewhat ironic that these Amazon owned pop-ups inside of Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon, uh, take credit cards through the Clover, but won't let you pay with your Amazon account. Um, so very, uh, a very different retail philosophy than the Apple, the Amazon bookstores where they don't show prices and, make use the Amazon app and all that sort of stuff. But I have a feeling that has more to do with uh, expedience than any particular strategy. Um, yeah, I'm sure someone in the bowels of Amazon is working on a POS for a Kindle kind of a tablet. I, I, I'm sure that's in the works. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so the I also got to visit the Google pop-up store. So this is an annual pop-up they do in New York. It was in... Um, Tribeca last year, and I think it's in the Flatiron District, which is just uh, a little further north uh, this year. And I would say it was a little disappointing. Last year, it was a net new retail concept, and they they used it to uh, give live demos of all the new Amazon uh, Google hardware. Um, and you know, last year the Home had just launched, so it was your first chance to see that. The Pixel had just launched. Um, they were showing the first VR headsets, and so there was a lot of like new hardware and it was kind of a cool experiential uh retail environment um and this year everything's very incremental like it's it's basically the same retail environment as last year but with the newer hardware in it and you know google doesn't have a lot of net new hardware this year it's mostly evolutions of the hardware they showed last year so you know google home is better and there are a couple permeations now they have the pixel 2 which is of course better they have more apps on the google vr but like there really wasn't any marquee thing um to see your experience in the the store this year that that uh, you wouldn't have gone last year so i guess you know if you looked at it on its own it was probably a good showroom by the way you can't buy anything there it's entirely a showroom um but if you compared it to last year, it was it was pretty darn incremental. Uh, and then I did uh, last month have a trip to Amsterdam. Um, there's not a ton of super interesting retail that would be relevant to this audience. Um, but one of the novelties, they have a, a very large Apple store that was one of the European flagship stores 
Um, it's now about five years old, but it still has the distinction of being the the world's largest genius bar. So um, it has this huge genius bar, and the the only reason I bring it up is it's it's kind of shocking to walk in the store. It's a huge two story store. In addition to the super long genius bar. They have tons of project tables for various services that they provide, and it's it's really a stark contrast to the fact that like seventy five percent of the of the floor space of this Apple store is really dedicated to services versus selling Apple retail products. Um, and I, I I do feel this is a large evolution of the Apple stores that you know they've. Uh, they've kind of reduced the third party products that they carry. You know, they're, they're more focused on Apple products than ever before. But the, the real role of the store has shifted from, uh, introducing Apple products and selling Apple products to providing service for Apple products. Yeah. Our, um, our local Apple store upgraded to that new kind of, what do they call it? Town Grove. hall kind of yeah, con- town hall? Or yep. the Grove. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I was surprised the number of SKUs they carry went way down on the third party side. Like the whole speaker display went away and a bunch of that stuff. And it is very much more of a service kind of an orientation, which is, which is very interesting. Yeah. And of course, as Apple has bought and more third party, you know, products and made them first party products, it makes it less appealing for them to carry the competitors products. So that, that's, Certainly part of it, but it, you know, there is an era when you would have gone anytime you went by an Apple store, you'd pop in because you'd be likely to see something new. If it wasn't a new Apple product, it would be some new accessories. And, you know, now, like, you know, if, if you're, uh, very techie, it's not very likely you're going to walk into an Apple store and, and, you know, have the excitement of discovering some fun new thing you haven't heard of. Yeah. Cool. So I was in New York for a personal trip and we went up to see the tree and a couple shows and whatnot and uh, hit a lot of retail. And as we were kind of wandering around the city, I had a list of things to check off. Uh, first up was the Amazon store down by Empire State Building. Uh, I had not been in that one yet, so I wanted to see that. Uh, and one of the first people I see there is Jason Del Rey, one of our friends at the Jason Scott show. So that was kind of a Funny coincidence in the city of what is it, eight to ten million people? I run into Jason at the Amazon store. Now, wait, was uh, he working there? Were... Is that his night job, or was he? Just... <laughs> no, he was actually. Um, he and a fellow colleague had actually done a tour behind that store. Is the Prime Now Hub for I guess South Manhattan, uh, and they had done a tour of that as kind of a precedent. Uh, and you know, this was let's see, this was December nineteenth or twentieth. No, that's yeah. Yeah, somewhere in there. So it was, it was kind of peak season, uh, and I guess they had they had gotten a tour during peak season as a precedent. And he was exiting through the store, just kind of have a, a look and, and ran into him. So that was kind of funny. Oh, very <laughs> cool. Yeah, and I yeah. I knew that wasn't his side hustle. I just wanted to make fun of him. Yeah, um, and then the it's been about eighteen months since I've been in the Amazon store, and I felt like they had done a lot of cool new stuff about having the app better integrated, and the checkout was you could check check out anywhere, which was kind of neat. You didn't have to go to the checkout, so there's a lot of cool things they had done there. Yep, and is there uh, a coffee I, shop in that one? That's a, a little bit on the smaller side, right? It has a coffee shop. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Uh, we didn't have time to stop by, uh, but I couldn't tell if they actually operated or if it's a third party. It wasn't branded. Starbucks or any other brand or anything. So it was kind of interesting. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. And that is, yeah. uh, that's on 34th street in New York, uh, which is, you know, one of the more storied retail streets in the world. That's the largest Macy's and uh, a ton of retail flagships open up on that store. So it's a, a pretty important, uh, retail real estate. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we literally walked from there to Macy's and like, you know, eight blocks or something. It wasn't bad at all. Uh, so that was cool, and it was good to see Jason. Um, and then I stopped in a lot of brand stores. You know, we talk a lot on the the show about digitally native vertical brands opening these stores. So I wanted to see some of them. Uh, I went to Everlane, which was interesting. Everlane's kind of unisex basics, uh, and the store was jam packed. So that was that was interesting. And you can actually buy stuff out of that store. So there was a lot going on there. My favorite one I stumbled on, I hadn't planned to go, is I, I read a lot about these sneakers called Allbirds, and they're they're always described as you know slippers plus sneakers equals Allbirds, and they've got this really kind of wool soft uh, kind of a thing in the upper, and then kind of a soft rubber sole, uh, and so went there, tried those on. That was really fascinating because that place was humming. I mean, it was like six people deep to try on shoes. Everyone was walking out with boxes. Uh, you know, you could tell there was a lot of energy around that store. The most crowded one is a skate brand called Supreme. Uh, and I've read all these articles about this place where people wait overnight. And part of the whole thing is they only let like 15 people in the store at a time because it's really small. So, so went there. Sure enough, there was a line literally around a New York City block. Uh, and it's kind of funny. The line breaks because it, it actually passes in front of all these other stores and they get angry when that line goes. So you'll see the line, you know, you see these breaks in the line. So, uh, people that don't know how the line works, all these international people trying to get in line, they'll just kind of hop in the line. So they have all these bouncers through the line and they're very surly. And this is part of the whole experience where they're kind of like, you know, this is not the end of the line, go over here. That's the end of the line. And they're, they're kind of mean to you. So it's funny to watch that. Um, but I peeked in the Supreme store and it's literally, there's probably like 60 SKUs in there, and people were buying as much as they could get their hands on. Um, I've also read that it's uh, they manage the supply so tightly. Most of the people that shop in there take all that stuff and sell it on eBay and Amazon. So it's really kind of a become a you know people just kind of camp out and get the stuff and sell it online uh, to first available folks. Yeah, definitely. So that was interesting. Play. Yep. And then if you're uh, in the retail world, you go to New York, you have to run by story. So I went by there. They were quite busy. Uh, and then uh, I there's a couple new down in Soho. Adidas and Nike have some cool new stuff. So I got to experience that. All very good. Uh, and then the one that was kind of interesting is AE, American Eagle, I guess it is. Yep. Uh, they have this AE studio where it's kind of this whole concept. And that's in Union Square. So it's a denim shop uh, and a laundromat. And it was kind of funny. The laundromat was really more of a prop. Like no one was there using it. it looked like there were six machines that had almost never been used. They're like these giant industrial stainless steel machines. Um, and this is – I've read several articles. This is going to be kind of you know, how they get millennials back into the store with this this this. They're going to come do their laundry and they're going to shop while they do it. Uh, the millennials I was with kind of gave it a thumbs down. They didn't like that store. The other thing that you would have appreciated is every every pair of denim had a tablet there, and they were, they were kind of high end iPads, uh, but they were just sitting there pl- looping a video. There was no kind of integration with reviews, and it was kind of stark having been to the Amazon store where they pull everything from online into the store, and then this one, which was just like this this kind of looping video, and spent all this money on these tablets, but they weren't interactive at all. I, I thought it was kind of a big miss for those guys. So got to experience a lot of a lot of retail on my trip, which was fun. Yeah, it's terrific that you were, you you got a chance to do that. Uh, you obviously you went pretty fast. Uh, at the Everlane store, did you see anything digital in that store? Because unlike a lot of those other brands, Everlane really is the one that like was started off as a digital brand and then added retail. And of course, online, um, they're really well known for having rich product information on there on their website and are super transparent. Like they show a bill of materials for all the, the products. So, you know, the real pricing for everything. Did they have any of that in the store? 
not that I saw. Yeah, it, it felt like uh, it felt like a small gap. You know, kind of the same kind of you know just basics. So like, here's a sweater in four colors. Here's pants in five colors on a table. Um, there weren't any. I didn't see any digital displays or any of that kind of stuff in the store. Yeah, that that was my impression from earlier as well. So it it, it it's interesting and disappointing a little bit that uh, um, you know even when it's an important part of your brand online that that uh, uh, a lot of these guys that are you know opening a, just a few stores aren't aren't figuring out how to carry that through to their physical presence as well. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. They need to walk over to the Amazon store and see how it's done. Exactly. Uh, although Apple uh, Am. Amazon probably has some room to improve there too. So hopefully uh, next year we'll be talking about some even cooler retailers that that are uh, getting it right. Maybe that that should be a prediction for next year. Yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, I'll leave that one to you. <laughs> so that's the troop reports. Uh, let's start at kind of a macro view of news. How do you, you how do you feel the the holiday? It's too early to call it, but we we should have a pretty good read here since we're doing this after Christmas. Um, how do you think holiday went for twenty seventeen? Yeah, I am pleasantly surprised. I'll even go so far as to say uh, that my slightly pessimistic outlook going into holiday um, was uh, it has not proven to be the case. So, you know, there were lots of rosy predictions going into holiday, as there are almost every year, by the way. Um, and uh, I had mentioned on an earlier show that oftentimes when you have a better than average year in sales, it's because you got super promotional and, uh, you know, very margin erosion. So you'd, you'd see all these great articles in December about how good holiday sales were. And then you'd see all these, um, bad, uh, quarterly reports in January from all these companies that talked about how they didn't make any money. Um, and so that still could happen. Uh, but the, the early indications are that, uh, we had pretty robust, better than usual growth in e-commerce. We definitely had better than usual growth in brick and mortar commerce and that it wasn't um, a hyper promotional holiday where where you know we just got there by by dramatically cutting costs and starting some crazy um, arms race. So so that all looks pretty encouraging. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing the same things. I'm uh, I'm particularly interested in hearing how Amazon did. So I, I'm on pins and needles until their fourth quarter review because if if e-commerce accelerated kind of to the 18, maybe 20% level, uh, you know, I think we could see a Amazon 30% Q4, which they, they generally slow down in fourth quarters. They, they, because it's just such a big quarter for them, it's, it's hard comp to do well on. So if they did high twenties or 30, that, that just means they just soaked up an amazing amount of, of share. So I'm curious to see what they report. Yeah. And that, I mean, we've already seen some, predictions i think there was a barons article that that um uh said that like 50 percent of all holiday sale uh sales were was amazon um so that that would certainly bode well if that proves to be true um you know one one of the data sources we follow pretty closely is the mastercard data and they're they're calling it uh 18 growth in uh december for e-commerce and 4.8 percent for retail which is a a big jump. That would be the biggest growth since 2011 for brick and mortar retail. So that's super exciting. And then one cautionary tale, uh, maybe with a slight asterisk, um, there's a couple firms that track UPS and FedEx on time shipping. And it does appear um, that we ran into some capacity problems, particularly with UPS. Um, so, uh, 
they're reporting that UPS uh, had 89% on-time shipping over Cyber 5. Um, that's obviously like, you know, one of the, the biggest uh, peaks. Um, and UPS is, of course, trying to be ready for that peak. But, you know, 89% on-time is, is pretty low. That's, that's lower than historic. And then uh, even in the first week in December, they were at 91% on-time. And that, you know, compares pretty unfavorably with like last year where they were at 97% on time for that same week. Um, FedEx, which is used a lot less in the overall scheme of things for e-commerce, is at like 99% on time. Um, but uh, uh, if these numbers are accurate, which UPS disputes, by the way, as you you might imagine, um, the it is a signal, you know, that that's totally in line with this trend we've been talking about, about uh, these carriers just aren't growing as fast as e-commerce. And so we, you know, we, we're perpetually having a bigger capacity problem every year for these peaks. And so, you know, UPS grew about 8% capacity this year, but we just said that the e-commerce might have grown 18 or 20%. Um, and that the result is that they're having to put all kinds of extra constra- uh, restraints and constrictions on retailers about what they'll ship when for, for retailers. Um, and it, you know, you, you could predict, project this trend out a couple of years and it certainly seems that whatever retailers own um, their own last mile capacity, um, hint, there's only one, um, are going to have a, a pretty big advantage over over the the rest of the industry as you know the industry continues to grow faster than than uh, UPS can can uh, uh, fulfill. Yeah, yeah. The the good news though is we didn't have a debacle like uh, was that 2015? I think 2015 is that one year where like three million packages got sent into the system and it couldn't keep up. So and a lot uh, of just missed Christmas shipments, uh, which is the, yeah the worst. Yeah, so a lot of stress on the system, but it, it kind of held up. It looks like yep yep um, yeah, and it you know we kind of mentioned Amazon in there, but let's make it official. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without talking about. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. So first, uh, let's talk about Amazon does kind of an annual press release uh, the the week after Christmas. And uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But and these things have gotten to be massive. It's like literally 120 bullets of, of highlights. Uh, I pulled out a couple that I thought listeners would find interesting. Uh, the most specific one is uh, they they actually said 4 million people trialed Prime during the holidays, which that's the most specific number they've ever used about Prime. Uh, and it's a big number. So, you know, most people kind of peg Prime at maybe 60 million. Um, in, and uh, sometimes, so that's a global number. So maybe the U.S. is 40 million. But if you have 4 million people just kind of in trial for the holiday, that's pretty amazing. You know, if, if if half of those stick, that's like a 5% bump right there and just prime folks. Um, they said the top selling item was the Echo Dot. And, and then uh, the Amazon, the Alexa has been the top download in the iOS App Store, which I'm sure Apple loves to see, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they also said tens of millions of Alexa-enabled devices were sold. So that gives us a range of 10 to 99 million <laughs> devices. But even when you use the low end of that range, 10, you know, a lot of people have talked about these things aren't that saturated. There's not many people using these devices. Uh, you know, that's that's with 300 million consumers, 10 million is 
pretty material. Uh, I, you know, I think that's probably a global number too. So, uh, you know, interesting to see they're pushing a lot of Alexa enabled devices out there. Um, there are some tidbits around the marketplace. They said a billion items were sold over the holiday season. They didn't really define the holiday season. I'm going to guess they probably call it November one forward. I don't think they're talking about, um, Thanksgiving forward because they, they kick off their own promotions earlier. Uh, but anyway, a billion items were sold. And then over the Cyber 5, which is Thanksgiving to Cyber Monday, they said third parties sold 140 million items. Uh, on the fulfillment side, they highlighted that 10 fulfillment centers had a million item days. Uh, that's a lot of items shipping out of a fulfillment center. Uh, and then this is kind of an interesting kind of flexing of their data science muscles, I thought, that, that you would appreciate – they said the East Coast has more holiday spirit than the West Coast because uh, Alexa was asked to play holiday music two and a half times as frequently on the East Coast versus the West Coast. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of a, a really weird tidbit for them to pull out, and it just kind of showed you know, how these trends that they're able to see through all the devices and machine learning capability that they have. Yeah, it's it's almost scary to think about like some of the insights they can get in human behavior um, from all that data. Yeah, they said like the most requested recipe was chocolate chip cookies. Uh, the most requested song was Jingle Bells. <laughs> so they, yeah, it was pretty interesting that they they highlighted a couple of interesting things there. Um, one Amazon article I wanted to ask you about, it said that uh, you know these ad agencies, and they mentioned WPP, Omnicom, and Publicis. Am I saying that right? We oui. um, that, <laughs> that they are spending eight hundred million in twenty eighteen for ads on Amazon, which is a forty to fifty percent increase year over year. Uh, I thought that was a interesting that the the ad agencies are really waking up to Amazon as a uh, an advertising venue, but then also. I'm curious, like where, who's losing the, you know, the, the 400 million or whatever that Delta is in there. Is it coming from TV? Is it coming from Google? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, it, it is super interesting. And I, I mean, Amazon is a great advertising platform for a variety of reasons. And so I, I think we're going to continue to see them get more relevant. Um, at the moment, uh, you know, and th these are wildly rough estimates of third parties. So I, I can't get into talking exactly about what, uh, what Publicis' spend is with Amazon, for example. Um, but directionally, what I, I think you're seeing at the moment is a ton of spending from brands on Amazon, uh, but it's spending that's coming out of the brand's trade budgets versus their marketing budget. So when you, you think about a, a, a big brand, a, a CPG like Procter & Gamble or an apparel brand or whatever, like they – there likely is a CMO that has a marketing budget to build brand affinity, and his his KPIs are things like unassisted brand recall. He's the one buying the Super Bowl ads, and those guys I don't think are spending a big are trans are not shifting a lot of spend to Amazon yet. Um, but uh, in addition to those guys, there's the a a salesperson that owns. Uh, all the sales that happen with Walmart or Target or Costco, and those guys have a budget to buy ads um, or promotional opportunities with those retailers to help sell products for that particular retail. So traditionally, that could be coupons that they they uh, co-publish with that retailer, or it could be in-store advertising. It could be an in-cap to make the products more visible um, or, or these kinds of things. And so now 
Amazon has become a major retailer for all these brands. And so it has an account team just like all these other brands. And it has a trade budget just like all those other brands. But instead of buying in-store point-of-purchase displays or coupons, um, they're, they're spending that, those dollars with, uh, AM at G and, and, you know, most often AMS, um, on the Amazon platform. And so, uh, if anything, that those dollars are really shifting from other retailers that are getting smaller as Amazon's getting bigger and the trade budget goes along with the sales on Amazon. So, you know, the, those dollars are probably coming out of Target more than they are coming out of uh, network television advertising at this point. Yeah, I haven't seen a circular in a long time, but I stopped getting the paper a long time ago, too. So I imagine there's... There's not a lot of opportunities to spend money on circulars and those kinds of things. Oh, uh, disappointingly, most retailers still have those programs and you absolutely can spend money on them. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of sacred cows there. So uh, shifting dollars off of those things is is probably harder than it logically should be. Um, but but it certainly is starting to happen. And once those dollars get shifted to Amazon, they become way more measurable and, you know, frankly, in most cases, more effective. And so... You know, once once that shift happens, um, that becomes a great case study. And I suspect a lot of the CMOs are looking at those things. Um, and, you know, I won't be surprised if we see the the big marketing budget start to follow some of those trade budgets onto Amazon. Um, another super interesting thing to me in this last month that we, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, is there have been a number of interesting signs uh, about Amazon entering uh, the the um, prescription drug market. Um, so they, they actually uh, got pharmacy licenses in about 13 states. Um, and there are various kinds of pharmacy licenses. So this is not a license to dispense uh, medications. It's a license to uh, uh, dispense medical equipment. So that could be the stuff you use for uh, getting oxygen in your home or walkers or all, all this this various medical equipment that Amazon now has a license to sell in like 12 or 13 states. Um, but when those licenses were disclosed, you know, that it became news. Amazon's looking at the the pharmacy business and, you know, whether it was coincidental or not, um, we, we saw uh, CVS make a big announcement about a, a potential merger acquisition with Aetna um, that would sort of de-emphasize CVS's uh, retail business. Uh, of course, Walgreens is in the middle of a merger. Um, we're seeing the big pharmacy companies kind of uh, try to diversify themselves and not be as as focused on retail at the same time that we're seeing uh, a number of interesting indications that Amazon might be uh, getting into the, the pharmacy business. Yeah, yeah. The CVS Aetna stuff was uh, quite popular on CNBC as a way to kind of have an integrated health platform uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what stops Amazon from doing the same thing. You know, they could open up their own health insurance arm or something. There's, yeah, there's all literally no business side. I don't think Amazon would get into. So it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, normally how that you, how it plays out when when you know Amazon gets into any new business, like there quickly are people that run up and go, well, here's why that business is different than all the ones Amazon's been successful, and here's why Amazon won't be able to be successful here, right? Like, and in general. All those barriers prove to not be very big barriers. Um, in pharmacy, one of those big barriers is that 
you know, you really have to have a partnership and an agreement with the insurance companies to enable the the folks that are insured by those companies to get your, their prescription meds from you. And since the the traditional pharmacies have locked up a lot of those deals, um, you know, people have speculated it would be hard for Amazon to enter without a a uh, insurance partnership. Um, and uh, what's what's interesting is there's a huge chunk of people that are now buying their prescription meds um, out of pocket and not using insurance either because they're underinsured or don't have insurance um, or because they're they're finding that you can in many cases get better rates on the prescriptions than the negotiated rates that the insurance company has locked them into um, and so you know one one piece of speculation is that Amazon could really be focusing on on uh, 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 pharmacy products for people that are paying out of pocket versus uh, you know, being a big part of the the insurance industry, um, and of course, it's not outside the realm of possibility. Amazon could buy a big insurance company pretty easily, in the same way they bought Whole Foods. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The uh, another kind of uh, kind of exploring a little bit outside of Amazon, but our our friend at Recode, uh, Jason, had an interesting scoop where uh, he had heard this is kind of in the category of rumors that Home Depot was looking at acquiring their logistics partner, which is XPO. Uh, XPO Logistics is a company that focuses on last mile logistics for heavy items. So if you've ever gotten um, something delivered from a Home Depot, like an appliance or a set of cabinets or uh, furniture and that kind of thing, XPO is well known for that. Uh, and you know what, what he was reporting is that Amazon's looked at the company and if as part of their furniture efforts, so Amazon's doing a pretty big push into furniture. Uh, I'm sure Wayfair uses XPO also, but I haven't seen anything specific to that. But I think I think they have a pretty good lock on this kind of heavy stuff being delivered. So, you know, what what's interesting is Amazon sniffs somewhere and other retailers uh, really wake up and are starting to make pretty big moves. This would be like a $9 billion acquisition. So this isn't just kind of a small defensive play, some of these things that are happening here based on what Amazon's doing. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that one to see what happens. Yeah, but you could, you, it's easy to imagine, you know, you're in one of these businesses that predominantly deliver big, heavy stuff like a Home Depot or a furniture company, and you go, hey, what would happen to us if Amazon bought our fulfillment partner <laughs> yeah yeah it seems like the best antidote for that is to start building up that kind of capability like like amazon is doing so you know I'm, i'll be interested to see if if retailers do that and what it would cost and if shareholders will will be on board with that um one i've been dying to ask you about that was announced uh, during our break there was target acquired shipped s-h-i-p-t there's all these companies named various plays on the word shipped, but this is the grocery delivery company. Uh, I think they're out of Alabama or some somewhere unusual. They're not a Bay Area delivery company. Target acquired them for between 500 and 600 million, depending on how the earnout works and stuff. Um, so kind of furthering this kind of grocery delivery battle. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. And well, so first clarification, this is not the company that Kmart uses to ship your pants, right? <laughs> Sorry, that's an old e-commerce joke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for for those of uh, you that used to watch the the uh, Kmart's original e-commerce ads um, that were pretty funny, uh, we'll put a link to those in the show. Uh, but yeah, uh, that was a big acquisition, and and actually their target second acquisition this year in the fulfillment channel. Um, and it's interesting. So uh, for folks that aren't familiar with Shipped, uh, you can kind of think of them as like an Instacart. Um, 
they they uh, have a big network of um, uh, ten ninety nine employees uh, that they send to the store to pick up goods and deliver them same day to consumers. And so um, they they do some fresh grocery deliveries uh, and they do a lot of general merchant uh, deliveries. Um, and they, they have been doing some work for Target, but they also do Kroger and Costco, I think. And so if you're Target, um, you're buying this company that, that a bunch of your competitors are using right now for same-day delivery. And that's a little bit dicey. Like Target has said in the short run, we're not going to change them at all. We're going to continue to use them. Um, and it's a little tricky. You you pay shipped a $99 membership fee to be able to get deliveries from them. And then you get deliveries from any of the retailers in their network. And obviously, the more retailers they have in their network, the more valuable they are and the more likely they are to be able to get people to pay uh, these $99 membership fees. Um, so if Target was investing in Shipped, hoping Shipped would just grow as a separate entity, um, it's a, a scary investment because if you're Costco, you might not want to use Shipped anymore now that they're owned by one of your competitors, Target, right? And so uh, potentially the company becomes less valuable when one of their customers buys it, uh, you know, especially when they're banking on this networking effect of of having more retailers and getting more customers, um, the, the other side of this would be to say, Hey, target just needs more capacity for doing same day delivery themselves. And they're buying ship for that, that capability. And they're eventually going to shift them away from this separate business model towards just being a, a resource for target. Um, and you know, that would make a lot more sense, but then they probably overpaid for it, right? Because they probably paid a valuation based on, on this uh, uh, growth projection that Shipped has as a as a separate entity, so it's a little bit of a a catch twenty two how how Target will use them, um, but it certainly makes sense that that uh, retailers need to be thinking and investing in um, their own last mile capabilities. Like particularly if you're going to be in the fresh category, you you want to think about how you're going to do home fulfillment on fresh, which is point to point. Um, so I I think there's some Interesting things. I'm glad to see Target making investments in here. Like th- this is potentially a risky investment, given that that uh, you know Target's claiming that they're going to let them run as a standalone company, um, and they're they're you know now potentially tainted as a standalone company, given that they're owned by Target. Yeah, they have to think the value is if we roll out same delivery to X Target stores, we generate Y sales, and it's worth five hundred million dollars to get Y sales. So why sales must be like, you know, in the billions of dollars, which makes sense to me. Yeah. And Target, you know, which is doing well at e-commerce, over 50% of all Target's e-commerce is fulfilled from stores. Um, and so this is really expediting that that store fulfillment. And since Target has a store close to so many, many consumers, um, same day can be, you know, uh, potentially cheaper than shipping in, in many cases. So, you know, it... Uh, it is leveraging target strength, which is this this big network of stores that are close to consumers. So, um, big picture, I like it. I, you know, I uh, hard to say whether they paid the right price for it or not. Yeah, the uh, we'll save it for the prediction show. But I'm curious if you think this causes Postmates and Instacart to to kind of if those pins fall as well from this acquisition. So we'll save it for next show. Yeah. 
Uh, one thing I want to report on is Stitch Fix. We talked about uh, when their S1 was filed, we spent a fair amount of time going through that and explaining that model. Uh, well, since that show, they went public, and uh, it was kind of a, a lukewarm reception. So when you go public, you put this range out there, uh, and their range I think was 16 to $18. They priced a little bit below that range at 15 which is an indicator that you know people were concerned. Uh, they had the kind of a negative backdrop. Blue Apron uh, had missed a quarterly number as Stitch Fix was out on the road, which is terrible timing when these things happen. Uh, so, so I think that contributed a lot to it. You know, they kind of got bucketized as quote unquote subscription models, even though one's food and one's apparel. And we know on the show that's vastly different problems to solve. But, but I think investors kind of said, hmm, this is, this is a challenging segment. Let's punish, but let's, let's not punish, but put a little more risk around this Stitch Fix thing. So they went public at 15. But then what was really interesting is there's – and when you go public, there's a about a six-month-ish, three- to six-month window before you announce your earnings. Um, so they didn't have any news or anything, and the stock just kind of slowly started to rise. So, so I think people, as they got familiar with the model – I don't know exactly what happened, but it got up as high as 28, 29. Then they announced uh, their quarter uh, in December 19th, uh, and – you know, there there's kind of a tale of two cities there. I think they did really well on the quarterly results compared, but going forward, they did talk about there's going to be some pressure on margins, and they're going to spend a fair amount on sales and marketing to acquire customers. Um, some folks reacted negatively, and then it kind of came back from them. So I would say it's been a pretty successful IPO. There, uh, last I looked, they're at a market cap of about two and a half billion, which is pretty good. Uh, and you know, so I think they're um, they're out there doing really well. Uh, and, you know, I think the, this investment is going to be what people watch to see. Can they really turn that into active subscribers that stick? Yeah. And it's not automatically a bit, I know the higher price you get in the IPO, you know, the, the more money, uh, that is for the company in the short run, but in the long run, it's not necessarily a horrible thing, uh, that you, you have some room post IPO for that kind of bump. Right. And that like, Certainly, you know, create some advantages in terms of um, equity for employees and and all that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, part of it also depends on who's selling in the IPO. So you can have primary shares and secondary shares. So if your investors are selling in the IPO and they get a low price, that's kind of bad um, because they are looking for a high return. But if it's the company selling shares, you know, there is an argument to be made to kind of Goldilocks it and be somewhat conservative um a lot of other people would tell you you know it's equity you're selling you should maximize the value of that and and do what you can so um yeah i think it's a the other thing you you know an ipo is just one mile marker on this very long road and it's really kind of the start of a new journey so so i think it's good that they've they've done well and and people are following them and there's been some churn in their 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 base of shareholders, but it seems to have gotten sticky and people that are believing it are, are there now. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of naysayers that kind of talk about it. Uh, they don't believe that it's kind of an algorithm company. Uh, and it is, it is hard when they also say they have something like 3000 stylists, you know, so, so like an algorithm company with 3000 stylists, you're kind of like, how does all that add up? So, so I think people are still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, they certainly are an interesting company. Um, that they're certainly claiming a lot of interesting successes around artificial intelligence and, you know, both, both for merchandising, for, for, you know, deciding what goes in that, that 
fix that box um, and you know how sticky those products are to customers and how many they keep. But also they're starting to use that artificial intelligence to define new products. And, and Stitch, Stitch Fix has kind of shifted from predominantly being a reseller of other people's apparel to, to producing their own products based on this artificial intelligence data now that they have this big critical mass I think as we've talked about on the show before, the chief data scientist there is the chief data scientist from Netflix. So pretty credible team on the artificial intelligence stuff. And in many ways, these guys are the poster child for artificial intelligence research, uh, retail. So it, it, it's cool that they're public and they're, you know, uh, disclosing more information and we're getting to see under the, under the covers a little bit more. So, uh, certainly someone to, to follow closely for that. Also interesting uh, that, you know, it's a, a female-run company, and I say that because the, the next piece of news we have is about uh, another newly female-run company, uh, which is Kohl's. Yeah, yeah. So Kohl's promoted their chief digital officer uh, to CEO. So we actually had Kevin on the show, Kevin Manziel. Uh, and this is this is really not official yet. I mean, they've announced it, but it doesn't happen until I think May of next year. Uh, but there's been a lot of articles kind of talking about how she's going to save the company. Yeah, I'm always excited about this because uh, Michelle is the latest in a sort of class of these uh, digital executives becoming the chief executive of the company. Um, and, you know, that we're really just starting to see the first wave of those. So in my mind, like one of the very first ones um, was Art Peck, who's now uh, who is the VP of e-commerce at Gap and is now running Gap. Uh, Billy May has been on this show. He he ran e-commerce for Abercrombie and Fitch. He's now the CEO at Sur La Tabla. Um, uh, Hal Lawton is is a guy we know well in the industry that ran digital at, at Home Depot and then uh, became a senior executive at eBay. And he's now the president at Macy's. And so you know Michelle is is the the latest uh, in in this class. And it'll be really interesting to see uh, what she does at Kohl's, which is particularly interestingly positioned so it'll be uh uh you know they're in in some ways they're like the department stores that are um really struggling right now and are looking for some reinvention and in some ways they have some uh unique advantages around pricing and treasure hunting and you know things that have traditionally been hard to do digitally um so uh uh it's certainly going to be interesting to follow did you see that article about uh, – so Walmart has this incubator called Store Number 8, and they're working on some pretty cool stuff. I figured you'd be more up to speed on it than I am. Yeah, they, they've they named this incubator Store 8, which is uh, based off of uh, Walmart Store 8, which was a prototype store. And they um, are – like both have a bunch of internal projects and are investing in other projects. Um, they, they've they announced a couple projects recently – um, one that, that, uh, is potentially a competitor to Amazon Go, um, which we'll probably be talking. We certainly have done a deep dive in the past. We'll probably be talking about it again in the future because I, I strongly suspect pretty soon that Amazon Go store is going to open to the public. Um, but, uh, uh, Walmart store eight has, has announced a bunch, a bunch of initiatives around VR. Um, so, so, uh, they, they have this woman, Katie Flanagan, who runs the, the incubator for Walmart, um, and she's very bullish on uh, the future of VR commerce. And so they they uh, recently had a big gala with the Huffington Post, and they showed a bunch of of tech startups that are doing 
you know, various interesting things with VR, increasingly with Walmart brands. So they showed like a, a mod cloth VR concept and a, a Bonobos VR concept. Um, and I have to say, uh, there's a ton of interesting stuff coming out of the incubator. I have great respect for the, uh, the team at Walmart, but I am not personally as, uh, bullish on VR commerce in the next couple of years as it feels like they are. I think it's, you know, it's an interesting technology, but like in many ways it's, it's, it's too, uh, sort of awkward and intrusive, um, to, to really be a convenient shopping experience. And, and, you know, most cases, you know, we're, uh, the shopping experiences that are winning are the ones that are lower friction than anything before. Um, and, you know, throwing on all this awkward VR equipment to, to go shopping, uh, doesn't feel super, super exciting to me. Like if anything, I'm, I'm more optimistic on the, sort of AR experiences than the VR experiences, but a lot of smarter people than me at Walmart. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But, you know, uh, predicting the future is exactly what we're going to do on our next show. So uh, certainly tune in to uh, to episode 112, where we'll recap the bold predictions we made from last year. And uh, Scott and I will both share what we uh, think are some of the surprising things that are going to happen in 2018. Um, and with that, I'm happy to report that it's happened again. We've used all our allotted time. Uh, so we certainly appreciate uh, all of our uh, listeners sticking with us. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love to get that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, we'd encourage you to leave feedback on our Facebook page and continue the dialogue. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and have a happy new year. Until next time, happy conversing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.